I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Welcome to the Devil's Junkie Podcast. I'm your host, Ralph Amsden, and this is the uh, On the Road edition as I drive back from Lubbock, Texas, where Arizona State took uh, an ugly 52-45 to loss, got down 18 three different times, did show heart in coming back, but ultimately they fall short to the Texas Tech Red Raiders, 52-45. And I told Brad Denny of the Speak of the Devils podcast that I would be doing this, that on the drive home, uh, I would just sort of go stream of consciousness, talk a little bit about the team, talk a little bit about um, the direction that they're headed now, the direction they've been headed in, uh, and and sort of what led to this point. Um, Now, uh, the sound quality, obviously I am in my car on the road, uh, both hands on the wheel, don't worry, I'm being safe, but uh, I expect the sound quality of a production like this to probably mirror the play on the field of the Arizona State Sun Devils thus far. So, the real question is where to start. I mean, we can rehash and and get back into the game against Texas Tech, uh, but I think ultimately what I want to talk about is more of, of just the state of the program in general answer a few of the the questions or attempt to answer a few of the questions that are bouncing around in my head and and also address some of the ones that have come up on the huddle in Devil's Digest. Uh, And if you're not subscribed to Devil's Digest, please do. Uh, It's a fantastic place uh, to either celebrate, commiserate, um, you know, laugh, cry. Uh, We we do everything in there and uh, and I'm a a proud member and and, and also staff and I've been working with Hode Rubino for the last couple of years. Uh, Absolutely love the the forums and uh, and uh, greater understanding of the program that they've helped bring me to um, as well as just being able to hear fans voice their concerns about this team talk about some of the things that they'd like to see different some of the things that they'd like to see continue so if you're not a member of devilsdigest.com subscribe I think it's 833 a month if you pay for an annual membership it's about 27 cents a day um, I can't say for the price of a cup of coffee because one I don't really drink coffee and two, I'm pretty sure coffee is like five or six dollars now. So, um, but you know, it's 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 not expensive, and it's a great place to build community. And community is what it's really all about. You don't want to be going through this dry season with ASU being one and eight in their last nine games. You don't want to do that alone, do you? You don't want to be uh, driving 12 hours, you know, trying to trying to rehash and rethink what Arizona State could could do di- could do differently uh, w- without the support uh, of those forums to help you out and they're a big help to me um, not just as somebody who uh, covers the team but somebody who uh, works in recruiting works uh, covering high school football and, and stuff like that it, you know helps me understand what people like to see what content they like to read what things people like to talk about and it really just helps shape a better product for you guys uh, that would be uh, my car letting me know that I am uh, a few hundred miles outside of uh, your favorite place Tucson Arizona so Anyway, let's get into it. Uh, Texas Tech, you know, this is a team 26 and 26 now over Cliff Kingsbury's tenure there. This is a mediocre Big 12 football team, good offense, not a great defense. Both of those things showed up. There were no surprises. Ultimately, uh, what happened is Arizona State took the took the twin guns right out of Texas Tech's mascot's hands and shot themselves in the foot. Early on in that game, they had an opportunity to go up 3-0. Uh, they miss a field goal. 
Uh, they do hit the next field goal to go up 3-0 after that, but, you know, back-to-back-to-back touchdowns from Texas Tech, uh, one including um, a short possession that came off a bad snap from Cole Cabral, snapping it off of Manny Wilkins' shin, uh, which is, you know, emblematic of some of the problems that they've had and, 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 and will be a little bit of what, you know, what I talk about uh, coming up here in a minute. But, you know, once you get down 21-3, your back's against the wall, and, and it's really up to you what you do from there. Uh, and if Arizona State had been able to initially um, weather that storm and then start to build their offense and pound the ball the way they did uh, and do some of the things that they were doing, they probably would have been fine. But ultimately, you know, they go on to make another big mistake, which is just to line up in a spread punt formation, uh, you know, backed up against their own end zone with about a minute left in the first half where Texas Tech was just taking timeouts, playing right right into their hands uh, of, you know, wanting to have another uh, possession. You line up in that spread punt formation, uh, you know, basically give people a free run to the punter, end up looking absolutely ridiculous in the process. And, you know, what ends up happening is you give them a short field to get another touchdown to go up 18 again just before the half. So your deficit going into halftime didn't need to be 18. could have been 11. And so, you know, you're in a situation where you allow that touchdown. It's 35-17, and you have a lot of ground to make up. And to Arizona State's credit, they make up that ground. They show a commitment to the run game, even though they're really not getting yards per carry. They're, they're, not, they're not doing a good job on the ground as of late. Um, but they show a commitment to that run game. They're not afraid to, to go for it on third and short, and then again on fourth and short if they don't get it. Uh, they, you know, they employed that sparky package. Manny Wilkins was able to make plays. The offensive line gave him a decent enough pocket. I felt like they were um, definitely improved as far as pass blocking. But then again, you know, Texas Tech not really known for their pass rush. Uh, but Arizona State, you know, they they have the opportunity to come back and they take it. So it's definitely a credit to them. Defensively, uh, they make some stops without Karan Crump, which is probably the most impressive thing they could have done in that game because they didn't really generate much of a pass rush outside of one or two snaps. And so, you know, they they come back, uh, they tie the game. Kyle Williams played out of his mind. Uh, Nikhil Harry really arrived, like truly became the five-star Nikhil Harry. It wasn't just flashes. This was from start to finish. Nikhil Harry had 13 catches, 148 yards, and a touchdown was completely dominant. You know, Frank Darby showed up again. Uh, had a had a lateral play that went for a touchdown. Um, you know they come back. It's 45-45, and all the momentum's in Arizona State's favor. They're driving down the field, and earlier in in the second half, they had gone for it, backed up in their own territory on a fourth and short, and gotten it. And Arizona State got themselves in another fourth down situation, and they elected to trust the defense. Um, you know they they punt the ball away. Texas Tech gets it with about six minutes left, and um, you know they they go on a four minute just absolutely gutsy drive uh, ends up being third and third and goal at about the three Arizona State uses their last timeout and you know Texas Tech comes out they get a short rushing touchdown from a wide receiver that absolutely dominated all game long and you know Arizona State's left with two minutes no timeouts and they have to make something happen and they just can't do it and that's tough to do on the road the crowd had really been out of it for the whole second half they were looking for something to cheer for that brought the crowd back in and it started to rain and just nothing nothing was going in Arizona State's favor which is really par for the course if if you think about it especially when you factor in the injury to Crump uh, the fact that they can't just lose big they have to come back and and turn it into you know a a heartbreaker of sorts Um, 
you know, and after the game, uh, we had we had a chance to ask Todd Graham some questions. We had a chance to ask Manny Wilkins some questions. Um, and Manny Wilkins, I mean, just visibly, emotionally uh, strained, shaken. Um, he, you know, this is somebody who is. I, I feel like possibly unfairly taken a lot of flack from the fan base because you know you you expect perfection you had three years of Taylor Kelly and when he was healthy he he was the offense um, you know in conjunction with with Jalen Strong and a strong running game but Taylor Kelly really knew how to make it go really understood the offense was a great leader and then ultimately you know you have Mike Bercovici come in with his heroics and his big arm and his giant persona and 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 the truth is, Mike Bercovici's persona sort of outlived, overshadowed his actual play on the field at times. And I think people remember the way that you make them feel, ultimately. And there were some big wins uh, when Mike Bercovici was quarterback. And I think people recall him being here for five years. They recall him speaking in terms of winning a national championship, the Sun Devil Brotherhood, things like that. They remember Mike Ber- Bercovici, um, you know, with the Jail Mary. And, and when you think back on Mike Bercovici, you sort of feel good, you know. But the truth is, you know, he started an entire season of six and seven football. And so, you know, it's strange that Manny Wilkins ends up in Mike Bercovici's shadow when the truth is, you know, that that shadow is probably not as substantive as, as Sun Devil Faithful maybe want to make it out to be at times. But Manny Wilkins, you know, he he had a rough year last year. He had multiple injuries. He was left in a, and I know I harp on this, but he was left in a Utah game absolutely beat up that he probably shouldn't have even been in. And he, he was able to grit through that. Uh, you know, he's somebody that when he was recruited, he bled maroon and gold before he ever set foot on the campus. He, he's somebody that the players do trust uh, to be a leader. Not not all the players. It's definitely a split locker room. That, that's one of the things that happens when you have year after year after year of quarterback competitions. You know, it's it, there. there's going to be division and, and there's going to be people wondering if, you know, if somebody else would be able to do the job better. But here's what we're looking at from Manny Wilkins. Um, his you know his 2017 season you're one and two you're disappointed you want things to be better but then you look at the stat sheet and you see a quarterback that's 69 for 101 like 950 yards passing seven touchdowns no interceptions he's not making mistakes you know the offensive line play hasn't been good Manny Wilkins is still not healthy if we're being honest He's getting hit way too much. It's not even giving him time to really recover from any of the you know ailments that he he might have had. And you know, so when looking at him face to face after this game, after they lose, you know, when the ball's in his hands at the end and they're not able to come back, you just see somebody who is completely like overwhelmed and perplexed at the idea that he's put his heart and soul into this program and the results just aren't there yet. And he said it himself. You know, I I could have been better. I should have been better. You know, why we could have won, we should have won, and I blame myself for not getting us going earlier. 
So he's taking responsibility for this, and he's taking it as hard as anybody. And so, you know, it's not really something that I like to see when I go on Twitter and I search his handle for the people that are mentioning him, and you just have people calling him a bum. You know, not not a lot of people, let's be real clear, because you see these tweets of people saying, you know, people need to stop calling out athletes and tweeting them directly uh, and things like that. And it makes it seem like maybe 50 or 100 people are doing something like this. The truth is it's like five or six people, and the rest of their tweets are all, you know, the only time they ever get on Twitter is to complain about uh, their cable being out or their food not being good at a restaurant or their quarterback not playing as well as they want them to. You know, so the people that are actually are, are actually tweeting like this, you know, that's who they are. Regardless of whether they were Arizona State fans or not, this is going to be how they spend their time and this is going to be what they do. You know, you shouldn't get credit for a non-negative, but the majority of the fan base doesn't do dumb stuff like that. But those tweets do exist. And so, you know, you go on and you see, you know, people call him a bum. People call for Blake Barnett. People say he's not a leader. And, you know, the truth is most of these people don't know what they're talking about. But at the same time, do you really think that those thoughts haven't crossed through Manny Wilkins' mind? This is a guy that's taken it harder than anybody. You know, he's not getting paid for this. This is an extracurricular activity that he's, you know, that is being traded. Uh, his physical services, his loyalty, his talents are being traded for time in the classroom, food, and a place to lay his head at night. You know, he, he's getting hit by 320-pound guys who run four seven forties. Uh, so that he doesn't have to pay an exorbitant amount of money to, you know, hang out in, you know, a dorm room if he chose to live there. Yeah, so it, to, to, I guess to go with the assumption that there's no heart there that, or that he doesn't care, um, it's, it's a false narrative that you really shouldn't buy into. Now, we can talk about whether or not, you know, he has the talent to get it done or whether or not he's made the proper decisions or whether or not, you know, he, he's got the leadership skills to, to get them over the hill. You know, that's discussing what a player's capabilities are in relation to what the goals of the team are. Can somebody get it done or not? Because college football, as much as the players aren't getting paid, is still a business. The coaches are getting paid, and if they want to keep their jobs, you have to have players that can execute your game plan in those positions. Now, if Todd Graham didn't believe that Manny Wilkins was that guy, uh, then he wouldn't have started him over Blake Barnett this year. And so... Ultimately, this coaching staff believes that Manny Wilkins is the guy. He's gone out. He's done nothing but produce. Uh, is he making all the correct reads? No. Are can he be better on third down? Probably, yeah. But at the same time, we're we're asking for Manny Wilkins to make the sacrifice of perfection in order to fix issues that probably exist, mostly with the offensive line, the coaching staff, uh, the defense, and and things like that. And so, understand for somebody to throw 101 consecutive passes in college football without an interception is absurd. It very rarely happens, and when it does happen when somebody goes over 100 pass attempts without an interception that's when you start to see those things mentioned on broadcasts and in the news like i'm talking about on the podcast right now you know so manny wilkins is taking this hard and you know it's i guess you can decide whether or not he should be 
Um, but I'm telling you that he is. If you, you know, I looked at the face of somebody last night um, who could not have been more dismayed, disgruntled, disgusted uh, with the gap that exists between his expectations for where this team should be and the reality of where it is, which is a one and two team going into conference play uh, against some teams that it's really hard to tell if they're any good or not. Uh, And the nice thing for Sun Devil fans is this. Conference plays a reset. That's not to say that everything that just happened didn't count. That's not to say that everything that happened won't feed into and build the narrative of what happens beyond today. You know, it's not like the offensive line just fixes itself. It's not like the coaching staff finds chemistry and gels after, you know, only being together for a certain amount of time and being from all different parts of the country and all different systems and everything like that. These things don't just fix themselves. They will feed into whatever narrative exists from, from, here on out, we are who we always were. But at the same time, the Sun Devils happen have an opportunity to be more than that. And because conference play is essentially really what matters. Which which, you know, the players expressed last night, um, and and you can take it one of two ways when people talk about, you know, the fact that there's a reset with conference play. You can take it for at face value because it is absolutely 100 percent true. Conference play is a completely new season. Or you can take it sort of the way of, you know, uh, the way you you know, used to procrastinate with homework or, or, or things like that. Or, or for me in college, it was like, if I go to sleep now, I can still get eight hours of sleep. Two hours later, I'm thinking, if I go to sleep now, I can still get six hours. Six hours, I'll be okay. Uh, and then, you know, <laughs> two hours later, I'm like, okay, four hours. And if I move this other stuff around, maybe I can get an extra 15 minutes. So, you know, you're always going to be hopeful and you're always going to look at the best case scenario. If Arizona State opens up 0-3 in conference play, they're going to say we still have, you know, six games left. We still have the opportunity to run the table because it's an unknown and you're always going to, you know, hope for the best. There's not going to be a time and you wouldn't want these players to say something like, well, we're 1-2 and and if that trend continues, we're going to be in a situation where we're, you know, 4-8. and So that's our season. Show up at Sun Devil Stadium to watch us or don't you know the writing's on the wall you you don't want them to say things like that um and they're not going to so again you can take it at face value conference play is a new season whatever happens happens this team will likely be plagued by some of the same things they're plagued by now and some of the things that are encouraging will probably continue to be encouraging or you can look at it the way that they're looking at it this team had the capability to beat san diego state Ultimately, if the refs call two holding penalties on that 95-yard Rashad Penny run, if the coverage team is even remotely prepared for Brandon Ruiz to kick it to the one instead of through the back of the end zone, um, and if a punt isn't shanked, then you're looking at a completely different, just three plays, and it's a completely different outcome. You're talking about a 2-0 team that goes into Texas Tech and maybe at the end of that game, if they elect to go for it and don't punt, this is 52-45 Arizona State. So they're close to being 3-0, but they're not 3-0. You have to obviously address the reality at play. But they know in their mind when they watch film that they were capable of winning those games. It doesn't take away the flaws that they had, but they can watch that film and say, we should have won. And like Todd Graham even even said after uh, the game, he thought they were going to win. 
Now that's going to turn some people off, and in me even saying Todd Graham, me even mentioning Todd Graham, is going to, you know, if you're done with Todd Graham and you hear Todd Graham's name, there's nothing I can do for you. But the truth is, that's what he, at the end of the game, he said, I believe that we would win the whole time. To take a momentary break there because apparently the mention of Todd Graham's name in Deming, New Mexico uh, makes lightning strike about 150 yards from the car. So a little bit of a break, but we're back on the road and we're good. And, and, and so back to it, Todd Graham believed that this team would win. Um, you know, that's, I don't think that that's just lip service. I don't think that that's something uh, that you say. He saw that momentum shift, and I think a lot of people saw saw it as well. I'm, I'm not sure. You'd essentially have to be guessing if you saw Arizona State, you know, outscore Texas Tech 28 to 10 in the second half and then have the ball and be driving and say, uh, they're going to lose, you know, they're, they're going to lose this game. I, I think that that observation would probably be based on, you know, just being an a, a abused fan going through years of similar situations. But within the context of this one game, it really did seem like they were going to come back. Um, and I think that that makes it even harder to swallow. Had it been 21 to three, uh, and then Arizona State scored to make it 21-10. And, you know, that's when Texas Tech was moving the ball. Um, they're, they're big running back. You know, he goes to extend his arm over the, the plane and loses the, the ball. And it goes and it bounces to the back of the end zone. DJ Calhoun falls on it. If that doesn't happen and Texas Tech goes up 28-10 to at that point, and both teams continue to play at the level that they were playing at in the first half, and Arizona State ends up losing, you know, by 18 points or more, it wouldn't necessarily be appropriate for Todd Graham at the end of the game to say, well, I thought we were going to win. You know, I'm disappointed because we had heart and we fought. The truth is, you know, they did show heart. They did fight. They were coming back. They did have the ball with an opportunity to go ahead uh, and ultimately elected to punt. Um and, you know, the, and the ball got worked down the field on him. You know, Nick Shimonek is a really, really talented quarterback, and um, he's, he's a Division One quarterback anyway, and Arizona State maybe just made him look talented. I don't know. But he had five touchdown passes in that first half. You don't do that without a little bit of talent. Um, he, he definitely had a couple of very, um, very skilled receivers, uh, you know, Kiki QT, uh, he somebody who was ranked just below John Humphrey uh, in the rivals overall wide receiver rankings and just below John Humphrey in the state of Texas coming out of high school in 2015. He definitely showed what he was able to do. Um, so, you know, this, this was a team that's going to score a lot of points regardless. Um, at the same time, the momentum had shifted. Arizona State was well on their way, and it just didn't work out that way. So... What I want to do is I just want to get into kind of a position-by-position position breakdown on how they got to the point that they're at right now uh, and whether or not what exists in its current iteration will be able to put Arizona State in a position to compete for Pac-12 South titles because – Honestly, if you're not going to, uh, what's the point? You know, do you want to be Oregon State? Do you want to, you know, celebrate when you steal a three-star from Boise State and you get your one win that nobody expected you to get every year, but you're still four and eight, five and seven? You know, do you want that? No. 
there's no point to any of this unless you're going to be competing for Pac-12 South championships. It's the same thing that Todd Graham has said. It's the same thing that Ray Anderson has said. It's the same thing that's on the players' minds. It's the same thing the players believe that they can do. So let's talk about it. Can they do it? Let's start with this coaching staff. Now, obviously people are not pleased with Todd Graham right now being one and eight in your last nine, essentially playing five, uh, you know, sub 500 football since getting beat in Corvallis three years ago. I think that Joe Healy pointed out something very interesting in that Arizona State hasn't had three consecutive losing seasons since the 1930s um, before they were even Arizona State. And so you don't, you don't, want to excuse anything that Todd Graham is currently doing by way of the results that are there. Um, and I won't do that. I'm not really somebody who, um, who gives credit where it isn't due for the sake of, of hope. And, and I subscribe to something that Todd Graham told me personally a couple years ago, which is they're not going to pay you millions of dollars to win half your football games. Right now, Todd Graham and Arizona State would be lucky to be winning half their football games. So by Todd Graham's own admission and own understanding of the reality of college football, he would say that he probably is on track to not be here anymore. Now, that doesn't change the fact that he has put a lot of himself into the Arizona State program. Uh, a giant awakening for anybody who isn't familiar with football sort of outside the Pac-12 and the laissez-faire, you know, atmosphere of it and really essentially only using it for entertainment value and, and the actual fanatical fans being such a low percentage of the fan base. You know, if you had traveled out to Lubbock, you'd get a real wake-up call. And I appreciate that Todd Graham had the team standing down on the field while Texas Tech ran out, while the Jets flew overhead, while the entire stadium sang the school song, uh, sang the school fight song, while they rang the bell, while they fired the guns, um, um, the, the crowd knew everything that was going to happen before it happened and was 100% into it. You know, to, to have your team play in a, in a big Texas football stadium like that and to see the tradition, you know, a lot of these players are from Texas. It's not foreign to them. But I think it's important, you know, to realize that, that football has a deeper meaning to more people in different parts of the country. And what Todd Graham has been trying to build at Arizona State isn't just a winning football program, but he's also trying to build a program tradition. It's one of the reasons why he donated some of his own money to uh, fund the stadium renovations. It's one of the reasons why you know, they uh, went essentially with with Adidas and 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 are, are sort of making a tradition out of being non-traditional. You know, with with their uniforms, it's it's one of the reasons why Tillman Tunnel was there. It's one of the reasons why now there's a statue of Pat Tillman. You know, it's one of the reasons why he makes the players you know go over to the band after after the game and uh, you know and, and link arms and things like that. He's trying to build lasting traditions at Arizona State, things that will be there beyond his time. Um, 
so you know that that's something that objectively you can say okay this is a guy who's from Texas who has seen it this is what he's about and he would like for Arizona State to have that as well now the things that we want to have and the things that we can have um, you know those are often two very very different things you know there are times when I want to go out to the keg to get a steak I look at my bank account and I can't you know and so the Todd Graham wants goodwill with the community. Todd Graham wants a winning football tradition. But ultimately, what they've done so far is the players they put on the field, the coaches that they have in place, and uh, you know the way that they've scheduled and the way that they've called games, it, it hasn't been enough to win. So, you know, he wants these things, but they're not achieving them. And so we have to look at the coaching staff and ask, you know, is this the best one to move forward with? I am of the belief that you are only as good as your staff essentially allows the players to be. And when you're handicapped by people taking different jobs every single year, whether you believe that's because they don't want to be at Arizona State or whether you believe the very real possibility that lots more money and lots more opportunity in other places equals something people want to do, which is what I essentially subscribe to for most of these people who have moved on to have, you know, uh, more more lucrative uh, jobs, you know, that, that they were sought out for. Um, you know, I, I look at that and it, it's a blessing and a curse. Um, it, it's, it's a blessing to be looked at as uh, a program that has the type of coaches uh, that would be valued elsewhere. It is a curse that when, you know, elsewhere has more money and more resources. You know, should Chip Lindsey probably still be the offensive coordinator of Arizona State? Yes. Did Auburn kind of run out of options and and could they offer him a ton more money and an opportunity to coach in a, in a place that he's very familiar with? Yes. You know, there's nothing that Arizona State could have done about that. And Todd Graham wouldn't be doing – people wouldn't want to come work for Todd Graham if he couldn't look him in the eye and say, oh, they want to give you – three times what you make here, don't do it. You know, they're, they're not going to want to work for a guy like that. You know, and it would be hypocritical for, for essentially the trajectory of his career. So here you have a bunch of different coaches who are, are just now getting here. You know, the players can like a coordinator, but ultimately it's not about, you know, whether they like the coordinator. It's, it's about whether the coordinator can get the most out of the players that they need to be on the field at any given time. And I feel like Arizona State has some of that in place. I feel like Billy Napier's pedigree is potentially more valuable than his skill as a coordinator right now because he's been an offensive coordinator for all of three games in the last seven years. The last three. And he's doing well. Has it been good enough? No. But he's doing well. But he's kind of learning on the job. And maybe by midseason it clicks, and this is the best offensive coordinator that Arizona State has ever chosen to employ. But the fact of the matter is you have to be intellectually honest about the fact that Billy Napier is new to the job. Sure, he did it once elsewhere a long time ago, but he's been a position coach. Now he's in charge of the entire offense. Phil Bennett's defenses at Baylor, I mean, they weren't 
were good. They were okay. It's hard to have a good defense in the Big 12. But, you know, he's been doing the same thing for a long time. Sure, him and Todd Graham know each other. Sure, him and Todd Graham have a, a basic level of respect for each other. Uh, and Phil Bennett has essentially promised to do it, Todd. Do things in a way that Todd Graham approves of, uh, but essentially be in charge and in control of the entire defense. I mean, if you look at the product on the field, Phil Bennett is working with players who are either fresh out of junior college, fresh off the track team, didn't have any other scholarship offers, didn't have any other division opportunities elsewhere. You know, Daz Tautolatasi and Chad Adams, they haven't been able to beat out the people in front of them for the last few years. So they're new to this. While Phil Bennett might have been a coordinator for a very long time, he's got players who are all inexperienced. Chase Lucas replaced Joey Bryant against Texas Tech, and you pull out one player with two and a half games of Division I football experience as a cornerback, and you put in another one with zero games experience as a Division I cornerback. So, you know, there, there aren't a lot of options for Phil Bennett, and when he did have a lot of talent at Baylor, they were an okay defense. Is Phil Bennett the answer as far as a defensive coordinator for Arizona State University? I mean, at his absolute best with the players that he would help recruit and get in place if Arizona State's able to right the ship enough to give him the opportunity to stick around more than this year? Or would they just sort of be a middling defense like like Baylor was? Do you want to compete for Pac-12 South championships? Arizona State kind of had to go with Phil Bennett, and Phil Bennett kind of had to go with Arizona State. Not a lot of opportunities out there for somebody coming uh, from Baylor, you know, whether he had anything to do or not with anything that happened over there, he's associated with it. And if that didn't matter, then Arizona State would not have gone to such great lengths to make sure that they could put a gap between Phil Bennett's name and the activities that took place at Baylor. They wouldn't have touted, you know, letters of recommendation, looking into his background and everything like that. If it was up to Todd Graham, he'd still have all the people that he originally hired back when he originally hired them. This isn't a guy who likes change, but he's been forced to adapt and he's had constant change. It's not a good profession for somebody who doesn't like change and he adapts and he usually does a pretty good job of getting people in the right place. TJ Rushing came into this job without experience as a as a as a you know division one position coach having that amount of responsibility. Is he doing a good job or not? I, you know, that's something that you can definitely debate. The you know, Keith Patterson, he's sort of been moved out of the role that he had, or as Hode often puts it, Hode Urbino, you know, the role that he didn't actually have, the role he told he was told he was gonna have, but didn't actually have. They weren't actually his responsibilities to call the defense. You know, Sean Slocum. Too many mistakes in Green Bay got him fired. Too many mistakes, you know, for Arizona State led to Todd Graham reaching out to Sean Slocum and bringing him in. Is he the right guy? Are these mistakes on special teams, you know? Are they directly related to the calls that Sean Slocum has made? 
has seeing Todd Graham and Sean Slocum over the last couple of years bickering on the sideline inspired confidence in you as a fan in either Todd Graham or Sean Slocum? Can you say, well, that's the way people are supposed to coach. They're supposed to be passionate. They're supposed to get in each other's faces. They're supposed to fix things that don't work. Or are they supposed to be on the same page? I don't know. This isn't an Alabama, Nick Saban, Lane Kiffin situation. They're not fighting over the sideline about whether or not they're dominant enough. They're fighting on the sideline, you know, not this year, but last. They're fighting on the sideline, you know, over whether or not the things that they've chosen to do on the field are even mildly intelligent or feasible in order to achieve the goals that you want to have. And this is a team that has incredibly talented special teams players, not just the specialists, but the people who actually fill in on special teams. A lot of them are some of the higher rated recruits in Arizona State history who have either just not developed to be the position players uh, that you would hope that they'd be, or they've been playing behind position players who are doing well. But they're on special teams and they have plenty of talent. And Arizona State continues to make mistakes, you know. So you have an ambidextrous-footed punter. Great. But he's injured. So should he really be punting with his off foot backed up in the end zone after, you know, some issues that you have cause you to take a delay of game? Against San Diego State? I don't know. Should you be lining up in a spread pun formation that Todd Graham said, you know, this is something that we do all the time. Well, I don't remember seeing it. And I pay as much attention to this program as, as, as anyone from the outside. The spread punt formation, you know what is common? The punt formation from midfield where the quarterback pooches it. The thing that Todd Graham said that they weren't going to do when he was hired. The thing that they spent the last six years doing. Not going for it, you know, from midfield. Taking the delay of game and kicking the pooch. That's, that's what I see them do a lot of. I don't see a lot of the spread punt formation. Is Sean Slocum the right guy for the job to get Arizona State where it wants to be, which is competing for Pac-12 championships? The jury's out on guys like Rob Sale, you know. If the offensive line does not have the talent to compete in the Pac-12, and I believe that it does, but if it does not, and there's another way of saying that, there's another way of looking at that, if... Arizona State does not have tackles if they just have a bunch of guards. If Arizona State does not have centers if they just have a bunch of guards, you know, maybe that's something that you can attribute to Chris Thompson. Chris Thompson wasn't fired. He took another job at Texas Christian. Was he the right guy for the job when he was here? I don't know. But Rob Sale has to come in. He has to recruit that position. He needs to look for tackles. He needs to find a center that works. It's three games in. Is this enough time to tell whether or not he's the right guy? Does it matter if ultimately it all falls on Todd Graham's shoulders and there's a chance he could not be around at the end of the year? Will we ever know if Rob Sale was the right guy? Is this year just a complete waste? Something getting you know, to consider. Arizona State has the deepest receiver core it's ever had. Rob Likens, you know, could be absolutely a beneficiary of that fact. Players seem to like him. He brings a lot of energy. 
Todd Graham seems to feed off that positive energy, seems to enjoy it, or has been quoted in the media, and I've seen him talk about it in such a way. Is he the right guy to help prepare you and get you to the point where you need to be competing for Pac-12 South Championship? To, to be better than USC's deep group of, of, of receivers, which Arizona State, I, I would put up there as far as just the receiving talent with, with anyone, not just in the Pac-12, but in the country. Is he the right guy to make sure that they stay motivated? Was it Jay Norvell? who's written books on receiving, who took the opportunity to go be Nevada's head coach, who just lost to an FCS team, by the way, at home. Are these the right coaches? Todd Graham was hired six years ago. You know, I saw saw a tweet earlier this week that said, it's from a Pitt fan, so of course it was misguided, but they said that Arizona State fans were so cocky when Todd Graham was hired. The truth is, Arizona State fans burned up Google trying to figure out what was going on after they found out June Jones wasn't going to be the one who was hired. Todd Graham came in talking about championships. Todd Graham came in talking about speaking victory. The more public he got with those things and the more the on-field play didn't match some of the things that he was saying in public, the more I feel personally he was directed to be a different public persona than what naturally comes to him. My preference is if if Todd Graham's going to go down at at, at Arizona State University, that he goes down as Todd Graham, as the guy speaking victory, you know. Maybe not as the guy blowing up on the sideline when something goes wrong. I'm not a huge fan of seeing that, but I, I prefer that Todd Graham be a little bit more of Todd Graham than he's been lately. The change came before the losing streak. They were 4-0 last year, and he was kind of a neutered, subdued version of himself. You know, Ray Anderson wants results. He doesn't want people talking about results. He wants results. Can Todd Graham bring those results? Is part of his persona about talking about those results, essentially vision casting, the kind of person that he is, envision success, then go get it. You know, being that public persona of somebody who vision casts, speak victory, talking about championships. You know, can he motivate people without that part of him there? I think they're all important questions. If you're not going to let Todd Graham be Todd Graham, then why have Todd Graham? Was another important question to ask, I think. But ultimately, they're losing. And like Todd Graham says, they're not going to pay you millions of dollars to win half your football games. So the answer to the question is probably that this, at this time, isn't the staff, but the season begins anew. Conference play is here. They can save their jobs. They can do a good job. They can earn the opportunity to work harder. Work hard enough to earn the opportunity to work harder. And that's all winning is. You give yourself an opportunity to do it again next week. Right now, they're not giving themselves much of an opportunity to even breathe. Especially falling down big against Texas Tech. Especially not being able to stop the run against a San Diego State offensive line with one kid from Tucson who would have killed to go to Arizona State and four brand new starters who would have all committed to Arizona State on the spot. And that's the offensive line that you let dominate you? 
there are issues. You know? And, and you can speculate as to what happened because there was success and now there's not success. You can go back to the Oregon State game. You can go back to Ray Anderson requesting that Todd Graham be a little bit more subdued in public. You can go back to Bo Graham being let go for essentially violating school policy. You can go back to uh, Gus Malzahn continually raiding Arizona State's coaching staff. You can go back to Mike Norvell sort of outgrowing the position. And this is something Todd Graham talked about before Mike Norvell took the head coaching job at Memphis, was he's kind of outgrown the offensive coordinator role that he's he's had. He's getting a little too big for his britches, you know. Of course, he says that jokingly, but there's definitely some truth there. You you can go back to having one of the strongest, most stout offensive lines in Arizona State history, you know, and V.T. Afilo and Christian Westerman and making decisions to, you know, run a run-pass option, shotgun-type offense inside the five-yard line in some of these games, throwing interceptions in the red zone instead of pounding the rock when you have Kalen Balazs, Demario Richard at that time, and D.J. Foster. You know, you can go back to Dennis Erickson's players if you want to and say, look, he won with Dennis Erickson's players and now he's got his own in there. And they're not winning. And I think this is probably the most important criticism of this coaching staff. And one of the most important questions to ask yourself is this. I want you to take one minute while you're listening to me talk on this podcast right now. I want you to take one minute forget it 20 seconds everybody's afraid of silence i'm not going to sit here silent for an entire minute but 20 seconds i want you to take 20 seconds to think of as many players out of the high school level that arizona state recruited out of the high school level that have fulfilled the potential that they had coming into Arizona State. I'm going to give you 20 seconds. I want you yourself to name as many players as you can that you feel like fulfilled their potential coming out of high school to the players they are now or the players they were when they left Arizona State. How many could you think of? For some of those players that you might have thought of, the jury's still out. If you said Christian Sam, I don't think he's there yet. You know, if you said JoJo Wicker, the guy that Todd Graham did a happy dance, you know, when he when he gave his commitment, two and a half sacks last year, I think the jury's out. How many players came in from the high school level as a Todd Graham recruit and met or exceeded the potential that they had coming in. DJ Foster, even though his senior year was frustrating, you'd have to say, you know, absolutely a guy like that, yeah. Manny Wilkins, I'd put Manny Wilkins up there. This is a three-star recruit. He didn't have a ton of other offers. He's out here throwing 101 straight passes without a interception. I feel like he's probably meeting or exceeding the potential that he had coming out of high school. But I guarantee you in that 20 seconds, you weren't able to come up with more than five. And if you were, then I would love to hear who they are. 
Now I'm gonna ask you another question. I want you to take 20 seconds to name as many players as possible who didn't meet the potential that you feel that they had coming out of high school. It's a lot more, isn't it? It's a lot easier to think of those players, isn't it? Could that be the same with every program? Maybe. But I'll tell you right now, Kalen Balaj is one of the most talented football players I've ever been around. To say that he's met his potential would be disingenuous. You know, Kareem Moore, Robbie Robinson, Lot of these offensive linemen you can probably name quite a few and, you know and some of them obviously there are medical issues I, I don't say count somebody having to medically retire like Graham Martinez or Chance Cox or Marcus Ball uh, you know I, I don't say to myself that's on the coaching staff but if you go get a talented defensive lineman and Connor Humphreys out of Oregon you can't figure out what to do with him, so you change him positions, and he can't crack the two deep. Who, whose fault is that? Whose fault is it when it happens over and over and over again, whether it's Ty Wiley? Gump Hayes. You know, some of these guys that they got from JUCO when they found out that we feel like we can depend on the junior college level. Oh, well, guess what? Everyone else is going to recruit JUCO now if it worked for you. So you sell the, the prospects on the idea that you can turn them into pros. What happens when you can't? Where is Doug Subtil? Where is he? It's probably about three or four times easier to name players who didn't fulfill the potential that they had coming in out of high school or out of junior college than it is to name the players who did. I, I think that that's a really important thing to factor in when you're considering whether or not this is the staff that should be in place. Because can they recruit? Yes, they can absolutely recruit, especially when they were winning. recruits get to campus and they don't do anything or they leave the program or they get in trouble and they get dismissed or they quit then what? Whose fault is it? Can you go through and make a case that each individual player assumes all every single bit of responsibility for not becoming the absolute best version of themselves? Yes, but if you do that, then you're not subscribing to the idea that coaches have anything to do with player development at all. I don't. I don't believe that. I think that coaches are very much responsible for what players turn into, who they become as players. The reason that I feel that way is because that's what a coach says when he comes into your house when he's recruiting you. This is what I can do for you. This is what I can make you. This is what I can help you make yourself if you're willing. 
So on some level, you have to assume some responsibility for how the players on your team turn out. Otherwise, you need to quit taking credit for every guy that made it to the NFL. Quit tweeting out, you know, pictures of Jamil Douglas and DJ Foster, Christian Westerman, you know. Because essentially all that is is a marketing tool if you're saying that they got themselves to the NFL. So, you know, I'm not sure that this staff and the constant on this staff, obviously, is the head coach. I'm not sure that this staff and all of the people they've brought in, and maybe that's the issue, all the change. But I'm not sure that, you know, they have been able to get the most out of the players on the field. Probably the best evidence of that would be last year's University of Arizona game. They don't throw a pass in the second half. They run roughshod over Arizona State. So that's the coaching staff. That's just the coaching staff. 55 minutes into, into, into driving and talking about this, you know, and, and we're talking about whether or not the coaching staff can get this done. And what Todd Graham will tell you is we've done it before. We've won before. We beat UCLA. We, we beat USC. You know, we beat Stanford. We've done these things. Yeah, but not consistently. And USC, you know, not only were they ravaged by the fact that they had the scholarship deficiencies, they're also ravaged by the fact that the two people they chose to lead their program in the wake of Pete Carroll, you know, one was an aloof, complete mess of a, of a coach and a person, and the other one, you know, had, unfortunately for him and, uh, and and the people in his life, let substance abuse uh, factor into the way that he did his job. This wasn't Matt Leinert's USC that you got victories over. You can only brag about those things so long as you're still doing them. So I don't know. It's what have you done for me lately? It's big business. Make millions of dollars. Are they the right people for the job? We've got conference play to find out. I mean, obviously, this is as deep as they've ever been at quarterback on paper. Manny Wilkins is doing everything he can possibly do. And I believe that. I don't think that there are still things in Manny Wilkins' repertoire that are going to be unlocked. I believe you have absolutely seen who Manny Wilkins is as a quarterback. And I believe he's the type of quarterback that would thrive in a system where, you know, Mike Shanahan is the one calling the plays. Alex Gibbs is the one in charge of the offensive line. You rely on your running game, and then you roll the quarterback out. You go deep, you know. You hit the tight end going over the middle. You know, you hit the X receiver running a streak, and you do that two or three times a game. Your quarterback ends, you know, ends the game 15 of 24, 210 yards, two touchdowns. Doesn't make any mistakes, but ultimately you got your quarterback to the point where the run game was setting up every single thing he did. I think Manny would thrive in that in that situation, kind of the way that Jake Plummer did when he went to Denver, you know. I think that's the type of quarterback that he is. But I don't think there's anything about Manny Wilkins' game that has yet to be unlocked. He's got great zip on the ball. He's got a pretty good deep ball. 
he is the most athletic quarterback they've ever had. He's He's got a quickness to him that almost works against him sometimes. It works against the angles that the offensive linemen are working. Or just against Texas Tech, you know, they, they would run these plays where uh, they would fake the handoff to Demario Richard, and then essentially as Manny Wilkins was going to follow Richard through the hole, he's beating Richard because of just how quickly he accelerates, how quickly he cuts. He's getting himself tackled instead of following a lead block. I think you've seen what Manny Wilkins is capable of, and I, and I think that that should be good enough. He should absolutely be good enough to win. 300 yards a game, two touchdowns a game, no turnovers. Like, there have been fumbles, but he's getting hit all the time. What more can he do? I think Blake Barnett's a playmaker. I think that Blake Barnett would be an absolutely fantastic option for Arizona State, and they are lucky to have him. Here's the deal, though. You have a coach that doesn't like to make mistakes, and you have a quarterback that isn't making blatantly obvious to the naked eye mistakes, the kind that, you know, the casual fan would see, a turnover here, you know, interception there, really bad read, missing wide open receivers. He doesn't do a whole lot of that. So if you have a staff that believes, you know, if you don't get penalties and you don't turn the ball over, you win. P.S. They don't get penalties and they don't turn the ball over and they're still losing. So that goes to show you that that philosophy is a tad, maybe maybe too much emphasis put on it. Look how many penalties San Diego State had and they won. Look how many penalties Texas Tech had in relation to Arizona State. They won. Discipline is an issue if it is costing you opportunities. But if you don't have those opportunities anyway, you know, what would this team look like if it was undisciplined? They'd be terrible. What would this team look like if it was turning the ball over? They'd be awful. Yet they are disciplined and they hold onto the ball and they're still having trouble competing with teams that they believe that they have more talent than. That's a problem. But Blake Barnett's the kind of guy who's going to go out there, he's going to make plays. He's an athletic quarterback who can run, absolutely run, who can make plays when he is on the run, who will look downfield for receivers to kind of break out of their routes, release, things like that. Is he better than Manny is right now in this offense, at running this offense and finding receivers? Probably not. Otherwise, he, you know, probably be named the starter. He had a little bit of a leg up there in that, you know, they recruited him heavily and Billy Napier, you know, is familiar with this. I won't say that they're best friends, but, you know, he's familiar with the system that was run over at Alabama. It was definitely kind of overblown, that connection. But at the same time, you know, there's some truth to Billy Napier having the ability to have an understanding of what Blake Barnett's capable of versus a quarterback that he's just meeting for the very first time. But you're really only going to go that direction if Manny Wilkins is making those big, obvious mistakes, and he's really not. And when you're a loyal guy like Todd Graham, when you want to go with the person that you feel like you have the best understanding of, and let's be honest, there's loyalty for the sake of loyalty, and there's loyalty for the sake of, you know, wanting to go with what you know. Not necessarily that you're comfortable with it, but what you know. What you know is always safer. 
And Todd Graham has said before, he's told me he's the kind of guy that likes to understand where a quarterback's coming from, get inside their head, know who they are, know what they're about, know where they're going to go with the ball, know how they handle pressure. He likes to kind of mind meld with his quarterbacks. And if he feels like he has that with Manny, then Manny's going to be the guy. So long as he's not in a wheelchair on game day, Manny's going to be the guy. I think Blake Barnett would be a fantastic option for Arizona State at quarterback. I think Brady White might best be able to run what it is Billy Napier wants to do with how deep this receiving core is. I think maybe part of Billy Napier wonders what that would look like as well. The quarterback, they're set. They can compete for Pac-12 championships with the quarterbacks that they have. If Ryan Kelly develops from what he was capable of in high school, if his shoulder heals up and he, he, he adds some weight and he stays uh, able to move out of the pocket and take off running, I mean, that could be one of Arizona State's great quarterbacks. If Dylan Sterling Cole figures out what's going on on the field and can use the weapon that's attached to his torso, one of the better arms that I have ever seen, that's a great option for Arizona State at quarterback. So they're good there. They can compete there. How they came to have all of those quarterbacks is a credit to the previous staffs, the staff that's in place now. You know, they, they're not necessarily recruiting quarterbacks for this upcoming class, but they don't need it. It's an embarrassment of riches. you got to be able to make it work with what you have. And I feel like the results on the field three weeks in show that they're doing what they can. Running back is interesting to me. You know, you've already given Eno a couple of carries and burned his red shirt. Um, but you're not necessarily using him now. Uh, Demario Richards healthy, which is fantastic. I'm somebody who believes that the offense needs to be run through Demario Richard um, with Kalen Balaj as sort of a complementary weapon. I think to some extent Arizona State believes that too because it looked a little bit like that's what they were trying to do against Texas Tech, and the truth is holes just really weren't opening up. But I, I feel like Demario Richard handles that a little bit better than Kalen Balaj does. Demario is somebody who can kind of squeeze in through a, a tight space and then deliver a punishing blow at the second level and turn what should be three yards into five. Um, you know, Kalen Balaj is somebody who can turn nothing into a 70-yard touchdown run, but he's also someone who can succumb to the fact that there was nothing there for him anyway. But, I mean, the cup runneth over as far as running back talent. Nick Ralston's your number three. He's probably a group of five starter. I mean, it's nice to be able to have that. Eno Benjamin's going to be very, very talented. He's somebody that, that you know, the fact, the fact of the matter is Kalen Balaj is the same size as some of these offensive linemen, and you're asking them to, to make even bigger holes than maybe they're capable of in order to get him out in open space and on the run, which is, I think, one of the reasons why they choose to get him the ball in some of the different ways that they do via direct snap or, or short passes or whatever. But Eno Benjamin, you know, Trillon Smith, the guys that you think could probably – make something happen through the smaller holes that are there if they exhibit a little bit of toughness. I think, you know, Benjamin really has that elusiveness, that Sean Alexander type slipperiness where you can never really get the right angle on him. His balance comes from somewhere that you as a tackler don't necessarily have the ability to, to comprehend on the fly. I think that he's going to be an absolute star. I'm not sure why they're not using him now. It's probably for the best, but at the same time, his red shirt's gone, and so you wonder if 
if they're just going with what they have because the two running backs that get the carries are the, are the ones that are the best options. You know, Nick Ralston has struggled in pass protection when Demario Richard was hurt. That hurt them a lot against San Diego State. But, you know, I feel like the product on the field right now, you've put yourself in a position where you have running backs that can help you compete for a Pac-12 South championship. But guess what? You aren't. Kalen Balaj's career, and this is something I'm going to try to write about this week, I won't say that it's wasted, but he's going to have a complicated legacy. Am I wrong? One of the most talented athletes to ever come to Arizona State, to ever walk Palm Walk, to ever take Sun Devil uh, Stadium, to ever play on Frank Cush Field, one of the most talented players ever, is going to go through with a sub-500 record and potentially sub-4 yards per carry, have most of his highlight real plays come in losses. It's seems like a waste is that because the offensive line is too young is it because they don't have the right coaching is it because of errors they made and trying to figure out you know personnel somewhere along the line I don't know I don't have the technical and schematic knowledge to tell you exactly why things are going wrong. When somebody misses a block, I can say they missed a block. When somebody makes a block, I can say they made a block. I won't pretend to be uh, any more of an expert than that. But the numbers show something different than probably what you expected as a fan. And the numbers definitely show something different than what the coaching staff expected. I asked Todd Graham last night. You know, you had a commitment to the run game. You ran the ball over 40 times, yet under four yards of carry for your two main backs. And he kind of, like, scoffed, like, laughed a little bit, uh, like, like, yeah, can you believe that? But at the same time, he also said, yes, but we did what we came out to do, which was establish a running game. And he's not wrong. It was working. It wasn't working as well as they probably wanted it to, but it was working. But these two running backs, you know, they're going to be gone. So then do you have what is necessary coming up, replacing them? Are the recruits good enough? Well, I mean, we'll have to see. Will any of it matter if the offensive line isn't able to hold their blocks to get a push? If players are playing out of position, not meeting their potential? The offensive line is interesting to me. You have four or five centers. Corey Stevens, Cade Cote, Marshall Nathy, Tyler McClure. All have the ability to play center. Could probably all step in for McCollum. But, you know, they believe that Cole Cabral should slide over from tackle, take over those duties because they don't trust what they have. And a lot of those guys are really young. Their bodies haven't developed all the way, and they still have a lot to learn. And playing center in Arizona State's offense is really tough. Marshall Nathy has told me himself. But it's blatantly obvious that Arizona State is not getting what they want out of the center position. Otherwise, they wouldn't be benching A.J. McCollum every 15 seconds 
only to throw him back out there when they realize the other things that they tried to do weren't good enough. Or when it costs them a turnover like it did against Texas Tech. You know, what were their other options at center? You know, they chased Brett Nealon pretty hard out of high school. He's going to be really good for USC. That's ultimately where he ended up, you know. There was a kid named Dustin Woodard uh, at Chandler High who Chris Thompson told, you know, if it was up to me, I'd offer you, but it's not up to me. He went out to Memphis and started as a true freshman, and there he was as a sophomore on the field helping beat UCLA. So, were there misses? I don't know. Nick Kelly was pretty big shoes to fill, and they got him out of junior college. They thought they could probably do the same with McCollum, you know? McCollum didn't come into school on the timetable they would have preferred. He didn't come in in as good a shape as they would have hoped. And he hasn't done what they what they want him to do as of yet. Quinn Bailey is athletic. I think he fits the mold of a, of a right tackle. I think he's made some mistakes and he's gotten beat a few times. But he's learning and he's still relatively... Uh, it's hard to say he's new to the position because he started all year last year. But, you know, he's working at it. Serviceable, right? Steven Miller looks good in the run game. Sometimes pass blocking doesn't look as good. He's also very young, kind of coming into his own. They had high expectations. Speak of the Devils podcast, you know, you want to hear about Zach Robertson's expectations, met or unmet. They've done plenty. I'm not going to rehash any of that. You know, he's back on the field, I think, making the most of the opportunity he has right now. Cade Cote is probably more suited for tackle, but it is crazy to have a true sophomore be one of the players that you have to depend on at left tackle of all places and expect to compete for a Pac-12 South championship. So this is, I mean, the offensive line in its current iteration is showing that it hasn't, it isn't enough as it is right now to get the job done. But, you know, you're kind of also dependent on whether or not some of these Pac-12 teams have built up their defensive line and their pass rushing schemes to take advantage of that fact. You know, maybe Arizona State's offensive line is exactly as good as it needs to be in order to compete in the Pac-12. We'll see. Tight end is a little bit disappointing. J.J. Wilson, as far as talent goes, is there anybody more talented that Arizona State has had at that position in the last 10 years? When was the last time you saw him targeted? Once, San Diego State on a route that he either didn't run correctly or Manny Wilkins had no idea what was going on. People say that he flashed potential last year, but the truth is he went up and got two ill-advised throws from Manny Wilkins and plucked him out of the sky against Washington. Has he shown the ability to just catch a pass, get eight yards to block consistently? That's another guy with unfulfilled potential. You talk about the expectations of somebody coming out of high school, whether they're met or unmet. You can 
tell that Billy Napier is heavily invested in, in, in heavy sets and wants two tight ends on the field. And it's the position that they've probably been mo- the most active in recruiting is to get guys that can play tight end the way that he needs them to play. And on the defensive side of the ball, Jalen Bates is gone. You know, he'll be back when he's back. But even then, you know, is he going to be the same? And if he is, they weren't using him anyway. He flashed potential in the practices that I was at, but at the same time, they obviously believed that he wasn't ready to be that edge-rushing presence. So you can't really factor him into the conversation at all, can you? Have George Lee and Ronell Wren met their potential? JoJo Wicker? I think we mentioned that already. Is DJ Davidson going to meet that potential? Right now, you have the guy who's kind of been in the program the longest, and A.J. Latu. You know, are they going to be able to develop Tyler Johnson? Are Kalen Thomas and Malik Lawal ready to step in for D.J. Calhoun or Christian Sam? Are Christian Sam and D.J. Calhoun doing the things that you need them to do? You know, the secondary, I'm not even going to bring up because it's just a bunch of freshmen, a walk-on, two guys that are brand new to to a starting role, and someone who's taken off a JUCO roster, and Kobe Williams, who is, I feel has played out of his mind for what he is, which is a smaller cover corner who didn't have any offers out of high school and Arizona State was his only option out of junior college that we know about. That's a guy who is maxing out his potential right now. Is Chase Lucas going to meet his potential? You know, wide receiver is probably the one place where you can say players are meeting or exceeding expectations. You know, outside of maybe Terrell Chapman, who made his first appearance, first catch last night, from my memory anyway, you know. But that's that's good for him. It's a deep receiving group. To be able to get on the field is great. Ryan Newsom showed that he flashed what he's capable of in, in, the, in the punt return game. You know, Ryan Jenkins is out there as a fifth-year senior, walk-on transfer from Tennessee, and he's... You know, he's kind of filling a little bit of that Fred Gamage role, making some receptions, but ultimately your possession guy is, is Jalen Harvey. He's your bailout guy. Nikhil Harry is, is your stud. John Humphrey is your deep threat. And you have two absolutely phenomenal, athletic, young, talented options in Frank Darby and Kyle Williams. My goodness. And, you know, they, they, they flew Curtis Hodges out with them. There's obviously some package that exists in which Hodges is going to get on the field. Some type of red zone thing where they're going to take the advantage of the fact that he's 6'8 with a decent vertical. Otherwise, he'd have been like Traylon Smith and Tyler Johnson and other guys that didn't fly out with the team. If they figure out a way to use him to their advantage, they will. I mean, they are stacked at receiver. 
So, I mean, there, there are places that, they, you know, they've done well in recruiting, and there are places where they could probably have stood to, to do a little bit better. But ultimately, the places where they've done well, the, the biggest concern is whether or not those players are meeting their potential. Can you compete for the Pac-12 South with the players that are on the field? Now, you're going to find strengths and weaknesses if you evaluate any team's roster the way that I just did going up and down. But overall, you'd have to say maybe outside of the secondary, the potential exists. The potential exists to compete. If the offensive line fixes issues at center, they will be good enough to give Manny Wilkins time to find playmaking receivers. Period. If the offensive line figures out essentially, I mean, give a fraction of a second more on being able to hold a block, and you'll be able to use Demario Richard as a workhorse, and you'll be able to have Kalen Balaj be that change of pace big play guy. You'll have those things. It's a matter of development and adjustments that they should absolutely be capable of making. There is only one major talent deficiency unit, and that's the defensive backfield. But, you know, as I tell Hode all the time, I love the Mike D'Antoni quote, you know, whoever scored the most points had the best defense. And all ASU has to do is to make sure that they cause enough chaos on a drive here or there defensively to give the offense opportunities to make one more play. That's all you need. Now, the upcoming schedule is, you know, people thought going into the weekend that it was brutal. And then coming out of the weekend where Memphis beats UCLA and San Diego State beats Stanford, maybe it's not as bad as you were thinking. Could Oregon be tough? Sure. But they're young, and you hung with them last year. And they're even younger in, in, in the secondary than they were last year. Winnable games, losable games. They could absolutely do things to cost themselves games that they should win. You you can't make any assumptions. All that you can assume is that it'll go either way, right? I mean, that they'll have the opportunity to win and do something to shoot themselves in the foot, or they'll have the opportunity to win and take it. But this is a team that has the opportunity to win. Is it built as well as it could be? Does it have all of the players that it should have, that it brought in? No. No, and a lot of that falls on, you know, to the, the, the players themselves. You know, whether that be Kareem Moore or Robbie Robinson. Christian Hill. You know, guys that kind of left the team of their own accord or because they had to. You know, it, you can absolutely put the blame on anybody who ultimately deserves it. But there have been a lot of departures. Is it more or less than other teams? I don't know. Feels like a lot, though, doesn't it? Doesn't it just feel like a lot of players have not finished out their eligibility at Arizona State? Whether it's 
DeAndre Scott, James Jones. You know, they need help in the secondary. Those two guys are probably be playing right now. You know, you got a linebacker making plays at San Jose State right now. Didn't get an opportunity at Arizona State. You know, you've, you've got a lot of guys that have cycled in and out of the program. And you can say that's normal. That's turnover. That's cost of doing business. But when they go elsewhere and they compete and they contribute, or if they just don't do anything, you know, if they leave like Robbie Robinson to not do anything related to football, not that that's not valuable if he's going to be a student. You know, he can do whatever he wants. But when you see things like that and the results on the field aren't good, you're just going to connect dots A and B. It's natural, completely natural. You shouldn't feel bad for doing it. Does this team have everybody that it could have? No. Somehow, guys like you know Jamie Otomewo and Ismail Murphy-Richardson get it in their head that other people's possessions are for their personal use. There's nothing you can do about stuff like that. Nothing you can do about Grant Martinez. There's nothing you can do about Chance Cox. There's nothing you can do about Marcus Ball. But when you just kind of sit and consider the amount of players that have come and gone, it feels like there are a lot of players that are not meeting the potential that you would assume that they would meet coming in. Now, did Todd Graham help meet Dennis? Uh, help Dennis Erickson recruits meet greater potential than they had coming in? Maybe. Guys like VT Afilo and Gary Chambers, you know, weren't necessarily heralded coming out of high school. Both of them got a shot at the NFL. It's really hard to put your thumb on and pinpoint exactly what's wrong. Maybe it's just the way that in-game situations are handled. Last year, you hear about Keith Patterson calling defenses from up in the booth, calling them through Todd Graham, who would change them if he saw fit, often led to confusion and chaos. You know, you've had anonymous coaches quoted as saying that Arizona State was only tough because they hadn't figured them out yet. And the wild thing is, after that quote was made public, Arizona State, sort of in corresponding fashion, seemed to not be able to stop anyone defensively. Maybe that's the truth. Maybe the jig is up. Maybe you need a new jig. There were accusations of cheating, of using technology to steal signs. You know, and the, there's a, there are conspiracy theorists out there and, that say, you know, there were there were accusations made, and then Arizona State had to do something about it so they wouldn't get caught and wouldn't get in trouble, and that explains why they no longer have the ability to compete or stop anyone defensively. Well, here's the truth. They still know what a lot of teams are going to do before they do it because it was never really essentially about stealing signs as much as watching film and understanding that people only run certain plays with certain personnel packages. So if the only time that you bring in receiver X is when you're going to run play X 
and then the defense notices and they call that play out before you're able to call it from the line of scrimmage, that's not cheating. Just like it's not cheating in poker if every time someone bluffs, they scratch their nose and you see them scratch their nose and you call their bluff. That's not cheating. It's not stealing. It's being observant. But if you watch this Arizona State defense play, they still kind of know what's going on. The problem is, and the problem has been, they just don't tackle. They don't tackle well. Even last night, even last night, DJ Calhoun was trying to knock the soul out of some players. Daz Tadalatasi was trying to knock the soul out of some players. Instead of simply just wrapping up, just put the player on the ground. It might not look cool, but at least you won't look ridiculous. And there are probably far too many players on Arizona State's defense that are comfortable enough looking ridiculous four times out of five so they can look really cool that one time. And that could be a generational thing, too. I mean, you a lot of these players on Arizona State, not to be too critical of the players, but the fact of the matter is, you know, you'll see them have a tough game, you'll see them lose, and then you'll see them take some of the best shots from the Sun Devil Athletic Department, some of the best photographs, go post it on their Instagram with some caption like, we keep it 100 or this is too easy. The fact of the matter is the team just lost. So, yeah, man, you look good in maroon and gold. You look strong. You look tough but you don't look like a winner because you don't win. And again, not unique to Arizona State's players. It's called flexing for the gram. I mean, I do it. All the pictures of my kids on Instagram smiling. Do you think they smile ever? Do you think I smile ever? We're just loud and obnoxious toward each other all the time. It's one of the reasons why I drove 12 hours some time in the car to think to talk about what Arizona State football is doing right and wrong so that when I get home and my kids are happy to see me in that one quick second I can snap a photo post it to social media and make it look like we're happy all the time but the real truth is if you were there and you saw you'd see we're as dysfunctional as anybody else we get a glimpse into Arizona State every single Saturday we see that they're dysfunctional but the players are You know, they promote themselves, their image, their brand, as is their right, as if just suiting up is essentially the reward. And you get to a point where if you're young on this team and you weren't around the winners, and Jamil Douglas brought this up on Twitter, if you're young and you're around this team and you haven't seen the winners and the leadership and everything like that, where do you draw it from? Where does that come from? Who innately rises up to say, I am going to lead this team? Some people expect it to, it should be your best players. No, it should not be your best players. It should be your seniors, whether they're the best or not. Ultimately, people look for leadership on this team to come from, like, Caleb Balazs or Mario Richard. Well, guess what, guys? Like, running backs aren't traditionally the poster boys for, you know, team leaders and setting the tones for accountability. They have a very specific job. Their job is to do that job. 
running backs as a group is, you know, receivers have to have chemistry as a group. The offensive line has to have chemistry as a group. Quarterbacks have to learn from each other over time to keep programs afloat. Your running backs have to run the ball. They got to get through space, make plays in the open field if they can, make people miss if they can. That's their job. That's all you should expect of them. So should Caleb Balazs be out here being the most vocal leader on the planet? Should he be Demario Richard's best friend? Should Demario Richard be a leader any more than he already has been as far as being the go-to source of, of uh, honesty and supportiveness for incoming recruits that he has been? I don't think so. Do you need your quarterback to be more visibly vocal like Mike Bercovici? Or is winning its own example? Does winning beget the type of behaviors that you learn to pass down from one class to the next? I wish I had the answers to these questions. I remember last year, you know, when 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 they had their final, you know, practice for the media to come and watch and you know, the year before DJ Foster had broken the rock and he had said, uh, you know, none of us should be here. We're a motley crew, but we're going to make it work together. Very inspiring speech. And he was right. You know, it was just a weird mix of players who all, you know, it's hard to explain how and why they all ended up at ASU the way that they did. But they're going to make it work. They're going to make it work together. And you knew who the leaders of that team were. Mike Bergovici, Jordan Simone, DJ Foster, and you knew. The next year, you know, it's Lionel Mokiola's turn, and he says, let's all keep our heads down and do our job. Well, that's not really how it works. You have to be able to keep each other accountable, right? Keep your heads up and do your job, maybe. It's good to be a workman-like team, but not everybody has the time or energy. These are student athletes. They're not professionals. They're not dedicating 100 hours a week to thinking about how they can be better at their craft. And the ones that are, they're a rare breed. They're not supposed to be doing that. They're supposed to be students right now. They're supposed to be a, I guess, athletic life balance. You can't call it work because they don't get paid. There's supposed to be this balance that exists. You're supposed to do your job within the confines of the time that you have allowed to do your job. But not everybody has the same motor. You need somebody to be a vocal leader. You need it to be more than just vocality, but you need somebody to be a vocal leader. Who was it last year? We still don't know. Who is it this year? Who's the leader? Who are the players Todd Graham was talking about said that they wanted to get up and speak in front of the team? Who is assuming responsibility for the way that things are right now? Who is going to lead this team and not just lead them to wins, but lead them in a way that sets an example for future leaders to follow? Because you can call Jordan Simone and Mike Bercovici great leaders, but real great leaders, real true leaders, create other leaders. That's their primary role. A good leader is like a virus. It replicates. And I'm not dogging Mike Bercovici and Jordan Simone. Arizona State University would kill to have them back on the roster right now. So would most fans. 
What I'm saying is there's a leadership vacuum. Quarterback competitions can create a leadership vacuum, and Arizona State's sort of in a perpetual quarterback competition. Had ASU won these first three games and Manny played the way that he did, I think the questions would go away. I think you'd have your default leader. But there's a leadership vacuum here. Something Kalen Balazs told me when I asked him about, you know, the whole Todd Graham hot seat thing and everything like that. I said, you know, what does Todd Graham have to do to get this team to where it needs to be? And he said it has nothing to do with Todd Graham. You eventually get to the point where it's the responsibility of the players to ready each other. It's a responsibility of the players to hype each other up. It's a responsibility of the players to hold each other accountable, to be vocal when it's necessary to be vocal, to lead by example when it's necessary to lead by example. I don't know if this team has that. Could the post-game locker room scene have been the start, the seedlings? We'll find out. But for right now, Arizona State sits at one and two. The season resets. It's a new day. You're wearing the clothes that you wore yesterday. You smell like you did yesterday, but it is a new day. And we'll have to see what happens from here. So if you'll excuse me, my throat is dry. I'm getting a little bit closer to home, but I'm done talking your ear off. This has been Ralph Amsden, Devil's Junkie Podcast, on the road back from Lubbock. I was living in a devil town. Didn't know it was a devil town Oh Lord, it really brings me down About the devil town